Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thank you guys for being with me here today. If you want to like, subscribe, or leave me a comment, that would be awesome. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew Lapoir. So yeah, today we're going to talk about Marker Therapeutics and their update in pancreatic cancer for their multi-TAA treatment. Earlier in the week I had a whole presentation ready. We were going to talk about Amarin, we were going to talk about Amune. Uh, but after looking through the presentation more, I thought I should spend more time on the marker update and uh, give my full thoughts on that. So that's what we're going to do today, followed up by a portfolio overview. So let's get into it. So what the update was, and we heard this between July 18th and 24th last week, they had an abstract submitted at the AACR, and then there was a presentation or a poster uh, followed up by an updated Q&A on the 24th, the Monday of this week. So we, we got a lot of different sources of information, the, the abstract, the press releases, there's also that audio from the Q&A, and uh, a lot of different presentation material. So I feel like when I started reading it, I had to keep updating myself because uh, new presentations would come up on their website. And I think it was in reference to the, the stock getting hit so hard after the initial data came out. I believe it was Thursday night, so this presentation that I'm going to give today, all the data that I'm showing is from their most up-to-date presentation, so keep that in mind when, when you're looking at it. But uh, to get into the details of the update that we saw, um, Marker Therapeutics has a multi-TAA therapy where they take a blood drop from a patient, isolate some T-cells, expose those T-cells to certain antigens that they feel are, are most useful to activate the T-cells, and then infuse them back into the patient at a concentration of 1 times 10 to the 7. And they do these monthly infusions, and they've seen a real benefit in, in blood cancers like AML and, uh, and other ones as well. But uh, AML is their, their most successful trial, I think, to date. And they wanted to see if this strategy would be useful in solid tumors. So the first one they looked at was pancreatic cancer. And this is the, the update on their data from that trial, their interim data from that trial. So... The patients had biopsy-proven pancreatic adenocarcinoma. It was locally advanced or metastatic, and they triaged patients into three different arms. Uh, patients with unresectable or metastatic disease who were first-line chemoresponders, and we're going to look at nine patients today. In arm B, they looked at patients with progressive disease and intolerant after first-line chemotherapy. Um, so these are patients that they took the chemotherapy and it didn't really work or the patients couldn't handle it. And then they went on to get multi-TAA treatment. And we're going to look at six patients there. And then in RMC, it was patients who are borderline resectable and they're going to infuse the multi-TAA cells, then make a decision on whether or not they're going to undergo surgery to get the tumor out. So that marker could then look at the tumor and see whether or not T-cells have infiltrated. And then these patients are eligible for another five infusions of multi-TAA. So they looked at five different antigens that they were going to expose or prime their T-cells with before they were going to put the T-cells back in the patients. And these are PRAIM, MAJ4, SSX2, Survivin, and NYESO1. And if you look at my previous video, I went through the, the literature on all of these antigens, and we found that Survivin is really the only one that that had a justifiable scientific rationale for being used in pancreatic cancer. So I laid it out as it was going to be a bit of a long shot, but there was still a possibility that Survivin was going to be enough to lead to epitope spreading and other mechanisms that could lead to an effect in pancreatic cancer. 
So this is the update from that, and uh, let's get into it. So for arm A, this is what the data looks like. We have two partial responses, one complete response, a mixed response, four stable disease, and one progressive disease. So if you add all this together, about seven out of nine had some sort of response to the, to the therapy. The mixed response, some tumors grew and some tumors shrank, so it's hard to say whether or not that's an actual uh, response or not. And given that we're interim here, some of these stable diseases might, might actually eventually lead to a, to a progressive disease. Um, but as it stands, based on when they, they took this time point, this is where we're at. And patients were given either gemcitabine, nabpaclitaxel, or fulfirinox. And these are two different chemotherapy regimens that have shown success in pancreatic cancer, with fulfirinox being more difficult to tolerate for some patients. So some of them opted for the gemcitabine and some of them opted for the fulfirinox. And these data points here are analyzed by this RESIST criteria, which is a very strict criteria to determine whether or not patients have responded or not to a therapy. So if we look at the actual timeline that we see here, and to lay out a little bit of how the trial worked, is that patients were going to be treated with first-line chemotherapy, the gemcitabine or fulfirinox, for three months. And then if they were responders to that therapy, and what that means is that they needed to have control of their disease. So either stability in the size of the tumor or reduction in the tumor size allowed them to be eligible for this arm A. And if they met that criteria, they were then going to be infused with monthly infusions of multi-TAA at that dose I mentioned before. They were eligible for five or six treatments after that, concurrent with the chemotherapy, even though the multi-TAA was going to be given on an off-treatment week so that it wouldn't interfere in the health of the T-cells that were being infused. And this is the data that we see. So what the investigators are, are arguing here is that in this single-arm trial, we see that three months after the multi-TAA has been given, the slope of the recovery here is steeper than the three months before. And now, given that this is a single-arm trial, it's very difficult to come up with, with a real objective way of analyzing it. So we have to come up with these intricate ways to determine whether or not there was an effect here. And there's two real ways that they're going to do that, and we're going to talk about the other one in the next slide. But basically, we want to see if the multi-TA had any additional effect with the chemotherapy, even though the progress of the disease changes when it's between 0 and 3 months versus 3 and 6 months versus 3 and 9. But one thing that we can do is look at the slope here. And we do see that in the complete response here between month 6 and month 9, there was a slight increase in the slope. And we also see in this patient one here, as soon as they got the multi-TAA, there was an increase in the slope, in the decrease of the tumor size, even though it did go back up. And if you're only listening to this podcast, I encourage you to watch the YouTube video because being able to visualize it makes a big difference. So other than these two patients here that did see an increase in the, in the steepness of the slope, it seems like there wasn't really a huge effect on patients from this multi-TAA. So really every other patient kind of leveled out. They didn't really see any additional effect, even though the investigators are arguing that there was a significant impact of the addition of these multi-TAA cells. But I would say looking at this personally, it seems like if there is any additional effect, it was pretty minimal. So the other way that the scientists on the call, the company, wants to convince us that there is a particularly profound effect here is looking at progression-free survival. 
So what they've shown here is the progress of each patient in their disease, and they're comparing the progression-free survival in both the fulfirinox-treated patients and the gemcitabine-treated patients to two previous trials that were done using these regimens. And they looked at the ACCORD-11 study, which showed an overall survival of 11.1 months and a progression-free survival of 6.4 months. And then with the gemcitabine, they used this IMPACT trial, which had an overall survival of 8.5 months and a progression-free survival of 5.3 months. So given we're interim here for the pancreatic cancer update, it's not very useful to look at overall survival, but we can come up with an estimate of progression-free survival. And what that's defined by is the time between treatment start and when the disease goes back to, to continuing, so when the tumors start to enlarge again in size. So I did a rough estimate here of what progression-free survival would look like just based off this chart here. And if we say that the red bars are when disease progressed again, then we can come up with uh, an estimated progression-free survival of around 9.7 months for fulfirinox and 8.5 months for gemcitabine. And if we compare that to the studies that they're citing specifically in their presentation, it looks like both for the fulfirinox and the gemcitabine that the multi-TAA is able to delay the time it takes for the disease to come back. But what we really need to find out is whether or not the Accord 11 and the IMPACT study are good representations of the course of treatment or the course of progression-free survival in your average pancreatic cancer patient who's got metastatic or uh, locally advanced disease. So what I wanted to look at is compare these studies to meta-analyses to see whether or not a more broad scope would confirm that 6.4 months for, for progression-free survival was, was a good estimate. And I kind of saw that, but I kind of saw that it was a little less generous than it should have been. And the reason why we're doing this is because single-arm trials are relatively difficult to interpret. So I looked at two different studies one that looked at 6,915 patients who were treated either on gemcitabine with NAB, paclitaxel, or fulfirinox. And what we found here is that progression-free survival for gemcitabine was 8.5 months versus 11.7 months for fulfirinox. And then I saw another study that just looked at fulfirinox, and they came up with a progression-free survival of 7.72, and this was in 332 patients. So what I want to draw your attention to is compare the progression-free survival in these studies that were much more broad in scope compared to the Accord 11 study and this IMPACT study, and we see that the numbers here are a little bit sandbagged. So the numbers for the Accord 11 study, the time for progression-free survival might be a bit shorter than what you would see in a, in a larger population pool, which I think is probably more valid. And then when I did a little bit more analyses, it looks like the Accord 11 study had more strict inclusion criteria than a lot of the other pancreatic cancer trials, so this may have had an effect on progression-free survival um, as it stands. So the reason for me bringing this up is that the investigators here want to tout this 9.7-month progression-free survival as this huge milestone in being better than Volfirinox alone when you look at the Accord 11 study. But if you look at uh, larger meta-analyses, and we see that Fulfirinox can have a, a progression-free survival of 11.7 months, it doesn't look like the multi-TAA is doing that much more. So I'm not too convinced here that the addition of multi-TAA in the single-arm A trial is doing anything more than the actual chemotherapy is on its own. Now the third thing I want to look at is 
complete responses. So one thing that is remarkable in the study is that in the RMA, they saw a complete response in a patient that had was treated with Valfirinox as well as the multi-TAA therapy. So what I asked is, how common is it to see a complete response in pancreatic cancer trials? And going back to that Accord 11 study, we see that they had one complete response of 171 patients after 10 cycles, and that's a response rate of 0.6%. Another study from Kang, H, and all, uh, they saw one complete response in one out of 42. And then this hacker, T, et al., they saw two complete responses in 125 patients. So I got to hand it to them. It's impressive that they saw a complete response here. They do occur in other trials, but they're relatively rare. So this, is, uh, this makes it only more difficult to analyze this interim data because they saw this complete response and one out of nine or one out of 15 patients it's going to be a pretty high percentage of complete responders, even though it's a relatively small trial. So this makes it a little bit more difficult to, to analyze, but it's definitely in the positive column for marker here. So what about RMB? So RMB, these are patients that were intolerant to first-line therapy, and after they underwent that chemotherapy regimen alone, they were then taken off that therapy and given multi-TAA monthly. And the data that came out was that three of them clinically declined, two of them were clinically stable, and one of them was clinically well off. And in terms of the timeline, this is what, we, what it looks like. And what we want to compare this to is the general state of things that happen once they're taken off first-line therapy. And the researchers on the call mentioned that the prognosis for patients after first-line is very poor, and doctors really look at palliative or hospice care and that in general, the expected survival is around three months before a real decline occurs. So if we're going to compare the multi-TAA therapy to that three-month timeline, we're not really given that here. We'll look at it in the other one. But um, three patients are relatively stable in their disease, so they didn't get an increase. And it doesn't really look like there was a real effect. I mean, patient four and patient five may have tapered off a little bit, but the difference between zero and two uh, centimeters to two and maybe three here. I don't know if that's really statistically significant. Um, patient two is clinically stable and they have not increased in their tumor volume, so that's definitely positive, but three of them declined quite fast. Uh, one of them declined particularly fast, so it's, it's tough to interpret this data, but it definitely doesn't say to me that this is a, a slam dunk for a second line treatment option. So this is what it looks like in terms of timing. So like I said, that three month after they're given their first line therapy is when doctors expect to see a real decline. And if we look here, we're just too early to come up with any real conclusion. But the one hope that they have is that the second patient here is actually doing quite well at seven months after chemotherapy. So this is definitely positive, but it's still too early to see whether or not these these other patients are going to decline quite quick or they're going to end up getting stability in their disease. So then in RMC, the only real thing I wanted to mention, uh, and I have this quote here, this is what they said, in these patients, multi-TAA T-cells were measurable in meaningful numbers as detected by correlative analysis of resected tumor and significant expansion of the infused multi-TAA cells was observed along with broad-based epitope spreading with significant expansion of endogenous T-cells specific for other tumor-specific antigens. So it does seem like they confirmed their epitope spreading mechanism, and I'll talk about that more in the next one. And then they posted this flow cytometry plot showing that 
of the tumor cells, 2% of these are T cells. So they, they couldn't really confirm whether or not these were actually the exogenously infused T cells or it was the uh, host T cells that ended up infiltrating the tumor. But the, the doctors did say that this is particularly remarkable because the stroma surrounding the pancreatic tumor makes it such that it's really difficult for T cells to penetrate. And here it looks like they did get penetration of T cells. So that's definitely a, a positive thing, whether or not this 2% is responsible for a remarkable improvement in disease progression, I'm less convinced by, but to see that the T cells can actually get into the tumor is, is a benefit. So, you know, what does this all mean? Let's break it down. And here is my, I'm going to do the good and the bad, and then come up with a kind of a conclusion here. But basically, the good definitely are that the T cells can infiltrate the tumor. They showed this in one patient in arm A who had some special disease that needed a surgery, and they were able to look at that tumor and see that T cells were there. And they also looked at arm C to see that T cells actually infiltrated the tumor, which is a good thing. They also saw that patients who got a benefit saw this epitope spreading mechanism. Basically, one of their mechanisms is that we need to start seeing some tumor lysis so that those antigens can prime the host immune system to start recognizing those antigens and then creating their own T cells that would be responsive. And that cascade of events should then lead to much more of an active adaptive immune system than there would be otherwise. So it seems like they confirmed some of that mechanism. Now, given that survivin may have been the only real antigen that could have done anything, it may not have been enough to actually cause a decrease in tumor volume. But the fact that they saw this epitope spreading means that at least in my in my head, like theoretically, it's a decent justification for getting as many epitopes as possible to actually start lysing that tumor and get that big effect. Second thing is that they saw minimal side effects. So one of Marker's real benefits here is that they have no neurologic side effects that CAR-T has. And if Marker is successful, they're going to try and take the throne from CAR-T and in order for them to do that, they need to continue to see no side effects like those that are seen in CAR-T treatment. So they got no cytokine response syndrome, and they got no neuro neurologic side effects, so that's good. Third thing is that they saw a complete response. And like I said, I got to hand it to them, one out of nine patients to, to get a complete response in an advanced metastatic pancreatic cancer trial is quite rare. So this is definitely a good, uh, a good sign for them although I think they're going to need to see a little more before we can get excited about it. And then the lastly, the last thing I wanted to mention is that the data is interim. So this is a good thing for them because there's still a bit of a chance that they can turn it around and get a lot more patients that actually respond to their therapy in a meaningful way. Now, what about the bad? So the first thing I wanted to bring up is why did they use irrelevant pancreatic cancer antigens to expose them to, the, to these T cells in their therapy? And this is a critique I had on them in my previous videos. I did think that surviving alone may have been enough to, to cause some kind of effect, even though it was going to be a bit of a long shot. And the executives on the call said that they are going to move forward in pancreatic cancer with the current product, which I think might be a mistake. And then they also mentioned that they might add antigens based on the knowledge gained from this study for a version 2.0. But they're making it seem like it's not a big deal to start a whole new trial with a, with a new product. And I think they're being a bit naive about that. For them to go through all of these trials for pancreatic cancer with this product and then create a new version 2.0 and go through all these same steps again isn't really a trivial matter. 
So this really makes me question their management strategy here. I think if the data was as remarkable as they're saying it is, they would be thrilled and be super excited about meeting with the FDA to, to talk about next steps. And they weren't really like that. They, they had these, these comments about, oh, you know, this is an unusual finding. We had modest expectations here, so we're really, you know, we're blown away by this. But that made me question how much they actually believed that this result was remarkable. So the second thing I have here is that the single arm design makes data interpretation very subjective, and that's obviously true. We're coming up with these interesting ways to try and compare this data to, to previously done trials, and it's really not ideal. To have a, a two-arm study would be great, where we have chemotherapy-treated patients and then chemotherapy plus multi-TAA-treated patients, and then we'd be able to get a much clearer idea on whether or not the multi-TAA had any effect. And I think if you look at arm A and you think about it, it's not really convincing that multi-TA had that much of a contribution to the effects that we're seeing here. So number four is that when asked, the scientists on the call said that there was no difference in this pancreatic cancer marker CA19-9, and this apparently correlates very well to pancreatic cancer, and given that it's such a small sample size, you know, we could say that the data was mixed, but to not see a profound effect here doesn't really make me feel good about it. And then number five, the bat also is that data is interim. So there's still a chance for the patients who have stable disease to turn into progressive disease. And uh, this could be a negative thing. But overall, the fact that it's interim data makes this trial very difficult to analyze. So for me, moving forward, they closed yesterday on July 26th at 5.37 a share, giving them a market cap of around $244 million. They closed out Q1 with a cash position of $55 million and they're definitely going to need to raise more money in the future, so I'm mindful of that. Uh, catalysts that are coming up, they have a their T-cell vaccine data in ovarian cancer. We're going to see some data on that in Q4 of 2019, and they had mentioned previously that they're going to do a type B meeting with the FDA for the AML IND submission in Q3 of this year, and they're going to start that phase two in 2019. So I bought 30 shares in anticipation that there might be uh, a big effect in pancreatic cancer, but we didn't really see that. And I'm kind of at even right now. So I'm going to hold these 30 shares with anticipation of the stock rising in advance of the AML IND filing. And I think that if there is any increase in the stock, whether there is or there isn't, they're going to have to raise capital, even though their partnerships with a lot of other institutions make it easy for them to do clinical trials without using too much of their money. But you know, it's inevitable that they're going to need to raise cash, so I'm going to be mindful of that. And I think that if the stock increases, you know, 10, 20% in advance of this IND filing, I'm probably going to sell then. I am expecting that the pancreatic cancer final results are not going to impress. I do think that the complete response was a bit of a fluke, even though it got handed to them, they got it. But I think that once we start to see the other patients come in, we're going to see that the multi-TA is not going to, to impress like it didn't in this interim trial. I think the executives are going to use the excuse that, oh, this multi-TA wasn't really tailored to pancreatic cancer, so we're very excited, we're very happy to see that there was some sort of benefit and look at the side effect profile. But I think they're going to say that, you know, we're going to try again with version 2.0. And with that version 2.0, we're going to add more antigens and we're going to tailor it to pancreatic cancer. Or if they pick some other indication, they might tailor it to that. But I think this version 1.0 is not going to be enough for them to want to push it all the way through to the NDA filing. So with that, let's just do a quick portfolio wrap up and I'll leave you all to it. 
basically the only changes I made are that I sold Sage at 181.2. I think the stock is is down around 160 something right now, so I'm glad I, I pulled the trigger on this. I did not reach the top. I think Sage got just shy of 190, which is a very impressive run for them. And uh, I did get a little cold feet when I saw that it was dipping into the low 180s. So put that money back into the cash pile. But basically, uh, my Nash companies here are doing terrible. Madrigal is now trading at 84, which is quite low. I'm hoping that eventually this is going to turn around and it'll work in our favor. So fingers crossed for that. Um, other than that, though, I am now just slightly below the IBB at around 7% for the year which is uh, quite a bit lower than the XBI, but we've talked about that previously. So big things this week. Uh, I know there's a lot of tech companies reporting earnings. Apple in particular is going to be a big market mover. Um, from a biotech standpoint, uh, we heard Biogen last week, and Illumina is going to report on Monday, so those are two that I'm relatively interested in. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's about it. I'm going to wrap it up there, but... Please uh, like, subscribe, or leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. Let me know where I'm wrong on the marker situation. Thank you all for watching, and we'll see you next time.